This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora and thank you for joining me for this Good Friday edition of Garden of Sound brought to you by Mint Finance. Today on the show, Reveal Atlas. He's director of Atlas Voices and a stage director too. He's a singing teacher, curriculum and software developer. He's a businessman, a writing coach, and he writes his own musicals too. It's pretty much a billboard for where talent, enthusiasm, and a true love of music meet. And Christchurch is certainly lucky to have him. But how did he find his way from the States to this quaint little backwater? What got him into music in the first place? And what does he really think of the talent pool in the Garden City? This is the Garden of Sound interview with Reveal Atlas on Plains FM 96.9. Reveal, I want you to tell me about the first time that music entered your consciousness. Probably the womb, according to my parents. The first memory I have of making music was as I must have been seven years old. I was in uh, grade one or year, year two here in New Zealand. And I remember I was picked to sing What the World Is Now, Sweet Love, Sweet Love. Uh, I think it was a Dionne Warwick song uh, with a girl named Una. And we sang for assembly. And I don't to this day know why. I just, I think I was, I think we, we were all singing in choir like you were supposed to or something like this. And they picked us out. Uh, my whole life I've kind of gone along with, what, what am I doing? Oh, okay. I didn't question whether I wanted to do it or I was good at it. I just, people said, go do this. And I went. What was the reception to that performance? Oh, it was great. I mean, the, the, for a bunch of kids, it can be really mean. They were fantastic. And I, I remember singing with Una. This was the cool thing. So she was from Uganda. This is back in 1968. And um, she was just the sweetest thing. And I just, it was, I loved rehearsing with her. And I loved singing the song with her. It wasn't, the applause afterwards wasn't the thing that, where I guess it motivates some people. For me, it was getting to know the song and singing with her voice and listening to her while I was singing. It was, it, it was a real turn of the process was amazing. Tell me about uh, your, your parents and music in the house. What oh. was sort of coming in through the air canals? My mother at one point was a professional dancer. From, she went from ballet to ballroom dancing back in the late 30s, 40s when ballroom dancing was, there was professional ballroom dancing. She did that. My father um, was very musical but never trained, so he would play at the piano by ear. He would just like pick something out. So there was a love of music, but there was also an, an unrequited fulfillment, if you will, for both of them. She couldn't continue in the profession. My father never learned how to read music, that sort of thing. But we always, you know, it was the radio, basically. And you know, let's face it, the 60s, the radio was cool. So we always had the radio on in the car. What sort of tracks were Beatles, um, Rolling Stones, um, Mamas and the Papas. I remember really hearing the Mamas and the Papas and going, ooh, Harmony and the Beach Boys. And, and we still had um, Dean Martin and uh, Frank Sinatra and those kind of guys. Um, but my recollection was 60s pop music. It was like the Archies. Oh, sugar. <laughs> um, and, and that stuff that played on AM radio. And so it was anything that was really, really promoted and popular, especially the Beatles and the Beach Boys and those kinds of groups. Um, Sonny and Cher, that sort of thing. And this is as a, as a seven, eight, nine-year-old. This is my first awareness. Of, oh, that's cool. And then, of course, you become a teenager and that changes. Was there any subtle or overt encouragement from your parents to, to enter the arts? There was a subtle, overt encouragement to not. Why was that? 
I don't know. I think it's because they both suffered from either not being trained or having a bad experience. I talked to them when before they died about that sort of thing, but they had always discouraged me from drawing attention to myself, from being in the arts, all the way through my, my career even. I mean, I loved my parents very, very much, but they were the kind of parents that would sit there and come up to you after a performance where you got a standing ovation and the first thing they would say is, oh, you missed that note knack too, you know? So I don't know whether I had a career in spite of my parents or to spite my parents. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I, I was never a person that was, I'm a performer. I performed for a living almost as um, a, a necessary evil. I loved the process. I loved rehearsing. I wanted to be an actor to begin with. That was, like, that was my first real thing. I was doing music in high school because you did. I actually dropped out of music, I think, going into high school because I had a really bad band director in middle school. Uh, he just turned me off to everything. But then I got drafted. I went to high school and suddenly got my class schedule and a choir was on there. And apparently the choir director had found out that I had sung in choir two years before and just without me even knowing, drafted me into choir. And I didn't realize you had a choice. Maxine Van Norden, I will forever remember her name because she started, restarted everything. Up to that point, I played trumpet, but it was school lessons. You know, it wasn't private lessons. It was you with 20 people. We played on a recorder to begin with, which is a plastic thing. Tonet, they used to call it. It's a plastic recorder, clarinet. And we all did that. And then we picked an instrument and we got trumpet. And the high school teacher would come to us and work with us. And I just kind of went through all through high school playing instruments. And I got curious. So I would play different brass instruments, different percussion instruments. And, and so in the band and the jazz band, I would play different things, trumpet in one thing, French horn in another thing, timpani in another thing. And by being around the music building because of the choir, I eventually got back into the band. And Don Cruz, I'm, you remember these names, uh, my band, high school band director. So he's one of those guys that was born to teach and born to teach music. And so he got me back into that thing. But in the meantime, I got into acting and really into acting. I had a phenomenal drama teacher in high school. He used to do seven plays a year. And it, remember in, Cal, in California, in the States back then, these classes were classes. They weren't extracurricular like they are here. This was, I mean, drama class is one thing, but our drama classes, we did productions. And this one was a former professional director. So she brought that ethos and, um, and it really rubbed off on me, the whole process of being an actor. So when I left high school, I went to American Conservatory Theater to be an actor. Now, when I say actor, I mean actor. You know, not, not film, not television, not that stuff. No, 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 no. I'm going to be on stage and be poor for the rest of our life. But we'll do Shakespeare and things like that. Ibsen. Um, and so I went to this really intense acting program uh, for young artists at American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, which was connected to the American Conservatory Theater, which is uh, the San Francisco version of the court theater. And one of the great things about it is we had these classes every day, but then all of the actors that came through the stage were required to come and work with us. So we were, we were going and seeing a play one night, and the next day, Freddie Ulster is doing the same scene she did with a guy last night for an audience with me. That was one of the first, like, oh, my God, this is incredible sort of things for me. Again, it was about artistic process. I look back now, because I can say it, but, you know, at 17, I'm like, oh. Um, so in high school, I was in marching band, right? Like we all are in, in America. And, but it was one of those marching bands that marches in straight lines and street parades, right? We were, we were awful. We did the homecoming game once a year. And I remember we like form a formation and then go tweet, tweet, tweet. And we'd all march around like crazy people until they, we formed the next picture. We stop and we'd play. It was just very rudimentary. And I remember being at home one day in high school and I was watching a football game. I thought it was a football game. It was a marching band. Ooh, cool. Oh, and they're really good. Really good. Wow. That's the best marching band I've ever seen. And then another band came out. I thought it was the opposing team. 
and then another band, and then another band, and another band. And it turned out to be Drum Corps International, DCI. This was the Drum and Bugle Corps World Championships, and it was on PBS. It was internationally broadcast. And I just thought it was cool. And two of the cores ended up being in Santa Clara, which was a 30-minute drive south from me, and in Concord, which is a 40-minute drive north from me. And one played classical music. And at this point, I was really into classical music. And the other one played jazz. So, of course, I went and joined or auditioned for the one in Santa Clara, which came in second. And all they kept talking about is, we have to beat the Blue Devils. We have to beat the Blue Devils. And I went, oh, i got to check out these Blue Devils. <laughs> went up to Concord. And they were a completely different animal. It wasn't as rigid. It wasn't as military. It was very laid back. As Concord was the jazz? The Concord Blue Devils, yeah. So Santa Clara was very military. And, very, and they were very angry about losing. Apparently, there was a massive feud between these two. I mean, they were friends, but they're also really competitive. And they've been trading world championships. But Concord was like, okay, dudes, you know. And, and we would, it was very precise and everything. We still had the drum corps militarism, if you will. But the music making was much more organic, you know. Um, and so I ended up joining the Concord Blue Devils, and um, that was the making of me. Some people have their experience in university, you know, the three years in uni we all refer to, or four years in university, whatever it might be, or the army or whatever. I spent uh, from 1978 to 1982 marching with the Concord Blue Devils. You age out. Uh, when you're 22, you can't march anymore. Ask any of us, do another 10 years. We absolutely would have. Are there any movies or any particular albums that you could recommend for people to check out? If you, would... if you really want to check out Drum and Bugle Corps, it's evolved since back in the day, and it's amazing. But it just the Concord Blue Devils, the Santa Clara Vanguard, the Phantom Regiment, um, there's so many really good cores now, um, the Blue Coats. If you just go on YouTube and put in Drum and Bugle Corps, you will find these great cores. And they have a lot of the full high-angle camera, somebody with a, a phone, of these shows. And they're they're extraordinarily designed. But there are shows like Drumline, which has a, a little bit of that flavor in it. Um, but there's nothing like the real thing. It's, it's, it's so powerful. When you sit in a, a stand um, on one side of a football field listening to a drum of bugle corps, the decibel level over your head, it's like a 747 landing on your head. It's really potent. And, um, and so the, the sheer wallop, I've seen so many people go, oh, I'm going to drum bugle corps. My, my girlfriend dragged me or my parents dragged me. My parents were that way. They were like, oh, do I have to go to this thing? And they were hooked. I mean, one show and they were hooked. They flew themselves to the world championships in 1982 at Montreal Olympic Stadium because they were just so hooked on this art form. Um, it, but it, it's, it's one of those things where they made me go beyond what I thought I was capable. They made me go beyond even beyond what I thought. I never dreamed of what I achieved with them as an individual, but also as a core member. They knew how to get the best out of you. Not more, but the best, because you were a Blue Devil. We only ever competed against ourselves. We're the best in the world, and we got to be better than we've been. On that note, yep. it's time for some music. Ah. We've got all the way from the mamas and the papas through to this exceptionally militaristic, but... <laughs> amazing sounding uh, drum and bugle core. Um, is there a piece of music you'd like to play right now? My first musical love was choir, was singing. And when I was 23 years old, I ended up becoming a member of a group called Chanticleer. And Chanticleer is a multi-Grammy award-winning vocal ensemble of 10 or 12 men, depending on the configuration. They were, and I think they might still be, the only full-time professional choir in America. I was 23, I was just trying to get better at auditioning, I saw this thing and I went and I sang for them and I found myself very quickly touring with, as a member of this 10-man vocal ensemble 
all the other guys being 35, 36, 37, 40 something, I'm 23 years old. And I'm making the most incredible music, night after night after night. Renaissance music, romantic music, and the gospel, and barbershop, and you name it, we did everything. And um, they are still to this day, when you say chanticleer to a choral person, they go, you, you were with who? Um, so it's, it's, I was very, um, a point of pride. But I want to play for you Loch Lomond. Okay, this is the, the Rayfon Williams arrangement of Loch Lomond for, for TTBB Choir. Uh, it was the one, my first awareness of Chanticleer was going to a concert the night I got offered a contract because I didn't know what they were. I I never. They said they offered me this contract, and I go, "What?" I thought you must was, have been pretty good to get off with that. I don't know. I mean, I think I was good, but I think I was also just really, really lucky. Right time, right place, and and right skill set. So they gave me a ticket to go to Berkeley. That this was in San Francisco. I went over to Berkeley, saw their concert that night. This amazing group, standing ovation, people going wild. And I realized as I was clapping for them at the end of it, oh my god, I'm going to be one of them. It was like the the awakening didn't happen until they sang Loch Lomond. And the crowd went nuts. They stood up for the one song. And I realized, oh, Lord, that's what I'm going to be doing. Now, now, I had no realization of what that meant. But I want you to hear this amazing arrangement, amazing performance of Loch Lomond.
This is the Garden of Sound interview with Reveal Atlas on Plains FM 96.9. Reveal, I want to talk about gigs and concerts and things, whether paid for or perhaps you were pushed along to by parents or something. What was the first sort of concert you remember? I remember seeing Maynard Ferguson, trumpet, jazz trumpet player, in high school because I was in the jazz band. That was, that was phenomenal. Um, and I, I really did get into jazz later on. But in between, as a high school kid, and I know I'm biased, but the 70s and the, 80s, the 70s were phenomenal for bands. And I remember going to Queen twice. I remember going to Styx. Earth, Wind & Fire was one of the most amazing concerts. But oddly enough, you know, um, as my friends in California said, oh, the white kid from Fremont, that's me. Because a lot of my friends were African-Americans. They were living in Oakland, stuff like this, which had a very strong African-American community. And as the Oakland Coliseum, where my beloved Warriors play basketball right now for the last year. Oracle Arena, they call it now. Um, I was born two kilometers from that arena in Alameda. And um, I remember going to um, Parliament Funkadelic. And um, ethnically speaking, I was the exception in the crowd. Mm -hmm. And I had the best time. I had the Bootsy Collins. It was Parliament Funkadelic. It was the Mothership Connection. Um, uh, Incredible. It turned me on to a whole style of music that wasn't jazz. It was soul and R&B and funk. Did Bootsy play on Delight's Groovers in the Heart? Yes, he did. Okay. Yeah. But Bootsy... Bootsy in this particular concert... I'll never forget the the Mothership Connection was a big... uh, flying saucer it came all the way down across and then landed on the stage and bootsy came out of it with the dry ice effect and everything in five inch white platforms and a white outfit and big fro and stuff like this playing bass and suddenly he got lifted up over the audience it was a wire act and was just doing this bass riff and we were just it was was incredible it was a vibe like i've never ever experienced before or since i can't even make the list of Bands, let alone you know the, the the individual performers, you know the the Billy Joel's and Elton Johns and um, stuff like that. The, the bands were incredible, you know um, Chicago and Boston and yes and uh, Led Zeppelin and still still the, the the Grateful Dead and the Doobie Brothers. What do you put it down to? It wasn't commercial yet to the extent that we were. They were still making music like musicians, guys. And I was in a band called Search. <laughs> Everybody was in a band at some point. But we got to the point where we were warming up for an outdoor concert. It was LTD and Doobie Brothers. And we were the warm-up act, the local warm-up act. I remember this agent was telling us, okay, you got to start writing your own music. Because they liked the sound. I think it was a different vibe back then. It was still a little bit on the pure side. It wasn't on the make the money, make the money, make the money sort of thing. But it still came from, and we still had you know, the, the originality of these bands. These the groups that would go into a recording studio for two weeks and come out with an album, brand new album. It was, it was the act of creativity. They weren't waiting for the greatest, best song. They just, we got two weeks to write an album, go. I, I love that idea, that, that creativity is not something you wait for. It's something you facilitate by doing it. The more you create, the more creation you get. And is this something you pass on to your students? Oh, I work with a lot of singer-songwriters. And I sit there, if you're creative, you write every day. Stephen King was a great interview with him. He had 24 novels released in one year. He had to release half of them as Richard Bachman because they didn't want to flood the um, the market. And they were interviewing him and they asked him about his process and everything. He goes, what, I I get up in the morning, I have breakfast, I go for a walk, I sit down at my typewriter at 10.30, I write until 1.30, I stop, I have lunch, I go for another walk, I come back and I write from 2.30 to 5.30. And he looked at the guy like, it's my job. And he writes every five days a week. You know, he has a weekend like everybody else. 
but he kept writing. It wasn't like sitting there wondering, oh, when's a great song going to come? He just kept writing. And I think he said at one point he probably threw away more than he published that year. I mean, that's six hours a day of full-on writing. Whether you like it or not, you're writing. And it starts flowing. So are you very much of the mind that creativity, there is an infinite well? I, I'm not sure if it's an infinite well. I think there's an infinite set of possibilities. It's tapping into it. It's, it's the, the, the process of creation for the sake of communication. You don't just wait to say the right thing. You, you, we stumble and bumble over the way we, as you can see right now, uh, try, to, try to express ourselves. And um, I, I know for me as a creative, in other words, as a performer, I'm a recreative. As a writer, I'm a creative. And the more I create, the more I do. And the more, for me, the more condensed it is, the better it is. So I can imagine somebody writing two, three, four hours a day. So you singer-songwriter out there, <laughs> create more. Don't wait for it. I think somebody said it like an inspiration and perspiration. I think the inspiration comes from the perspiration, not the other way around. I think every now and then we get lucky and we're inspired. But boy, for me... I start writing, I start writing, I hit a block, I hit a block, and then suddenly something just becomes very clear. And it's that constant process of art. Is there anything you'd say to a younger version of yourself? Be more selfful. Um, the, the arts is filled with people who are selfless and selfish. Um, it's about me on the stage. Clap for me, clap for me, 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 me. I, I know a, a lot of people, will, will, as long as they're on stage getting applause, they don't care whether the thing they're in is any good. And that's a good skill to have if you're making a living, because sometimes you have to do things you don't like. <laughs> um, selfless are the people that um, completely give them themselves, you know, they, they, of, of, to the art form, to their detriment. Selfful is having an awareness that we rely on the people we're performing for, the human beings in the audience. That's who we're trying to reach. If we're rehearsing every week and enjoying it, that's about ourselves. And that is also selfful, but that can also be selfish. It can be about ourselves. The, at the highest end of the art form, the communication with the audience is really what we're about. If they don't get it, if they don't like it, they don't buy it. And professional arts is still based upon people buying tickets or patronizing or whatever it might be. And so as a performer, you've got to learn to have a balance between what you want for yourself and what you need to do for the art form in other words, the, the creator, the author, the, the musical writer, whatever it is, or even yourself if you write the songs, and what you do as a performer to recreate that for the audience to make it meaningful. And even for a singer-songwriter, they have to go from that, from the songwriter, to the singer. And I've had a few that it's problematic. They, they're so close to the song, they don't know how to perform the song to really express it to somebody in the audience. That sounds like a tremendous amount of responsibility for a, for a young person. How do you make it easy on them? There's this thing that responsibility and hard work and all this sort of stuff is not fun. I think it's really fun. I think the act of discovery is incredibly fun. I think the act of discovery is phenomenally hard work. Um, it it can wear on you even, you know, especially as a as a creative, you know, trying to uh, that self discovery, if you will. But I like hard work. I like the responsibility. Famous story that everybody, everybody knows me has heard this probably. I was doing Les Miserables, and I was singing Valjean. I was in like my 400th or 300th performance, something like this. And Where was, was this being done? In, in San Francisco at the uh, Curran Theater. And I was very lucky in Les Mis because I was in the Broadway production 
that got mounted in San Francisco. So I'm working with, instead of being plugged into the Broadway show, I'm working with Trevor Nunn and Claude Michel Schoenberg and Alain Boubiel, all the, all the creative, the original creators of the show. It's almost like you were creating a show for the first time. So you go through that process where if you get plugged into a show to take over a role, you don't. So I learned a lot and it was an incredible experience. But I remember doing Valjean and this woman comes up, an older woman, and she, and she says, my husband and I bought tickets for this two years ago. You know, and they were expensive tickets. And, she, and I was like, oh, that's wonderful. Because, and he passed away six months ago. And I'm just like, I don't even know what to say at this point. And then she, and, and I was just kind of stunned. And I could feel my face starting to get red and tearing up and stuff like this. And then she says to me, she goes, I haven't been able to come to grips with it until you sang Bring Him Home. And from that point on in my life, I said, there's somebody, whether you ever meet them or not, there's somebody in that audience needs to hear you. With it to feel joy, to feel laughter, to have catharsis. I mean, it, it is at the end of the day about the catharsis of the audience. And that's driven everything I've ever done from that point as a performer. I don't care how tired or sick you are. Or, I remember doing two shows on the day that my first wife decided to ask, ask me to leave the relationship with, and my kids. And I did two shows. And it hurt like hell. But that's what you do. So this idea of responsibility, well, yeah, it is responsibility. But it's a glorious thing. On that note, this is Bring Him Home. This is Colm Wilkinson. This is the, the the first man I heard and modeled my my Valjeans after. Not that I ever tried to copy him because he's singular, but the understanding of the depth of the character came from this incredibly soulful voice. Um, so this is, and everybody will know this recording, but it's Bring Him Home from Les Miserables. He is young, he is a real 
This is the Gardner Sound interview with Reveal Atlas on Plains FM 96.9. I want to talk about your original music making process. How does how does one such as you go about doing it? It depends on what I'm doing. Um, working with a lot of singer-songwriters, I find myself singer-songwriting, not because of something I want to do, but in the process of, of showing them how to create without the big inspirational thing. So we go through a series of questions. What do you feel strongly about? What do you want to, is there something you want to say? Um, every day, write down thoughts. Um, I like the 365-day calendars. At the end of a year, you should look at that calendar, and there should be something written on every page. A thought, a lyric, a riff, a hook, a, a chord progression. Uh, I want to write a song that sounds like this. We are a, a bit of a copycap industry, and there's only you know 13 notes in, in the scale. There's only so, so many chord progressions you can do. It's the creativity of expressing a thought to an audience through it. Back in the 60s, there was a silly song. It was a big hit. Uh, but it was, um, I got a brand new pair of roller skates. You got a brand new key. How, how do you get inspired by that? Or do you know the way to San Jose? Wake me up before you go, go. I'm walking on sunshine. I mean, this, they didn't get inspired to do this, I don't think. So we start with that. What, what do we want to talk about? And if uh, from that point, we talk about, okay, is that happy or sad? How does that sound, right? Okay, in, it, what kind of riff would that have? What, what kind of um, rhythm on the chords or whatever it might be? Um, and we go from that. Said so now, okay. So one of my singer songwriters, we in ten minutes we wrote a song because he was hitting a block, and we did this, and we found it was a happy song, and it had a certain kind of riff, and he it was about going to the beach. He loved the summertime. I said, tell me about it with your family. Okay, okay. So they they would get in the car and they drive up Highway One and they go and they see the beach, and you know they, they see all this activity out there. So we we just started developing, describing what the experience was like. And within 10 minutes, we had a song. We had a verse, chorus, and a bridge, and the makings of another verse. Uh, it was it was the perspiration. It was just working at it. I used to do a lot of arranging for marching bands and choirs and stuff like this. And I didn't do a lot of um, original composition. When I was in Italy, we were just gotten there. I was singing at Teatro alla Scala. Of course, when you move, it costs an incredible amount of money. But we found ourselves living at Lago di Como, Lake Como, <laughs> which is nice. Yeah? And this big apartment, but we had no money. I had a motorino. And so we would drive up to Bellagio for lunch, you know, stuff like that. But we really had no money. We couldn't go on vacation. So I started writing this musical. Back in the day when I was in Les Miserables, I got, and Phantom of the Opera, I got in a conversation with Cameron McIntosh, the really famous producer. And I said, why is it that the two greatest, longest-running musicals are based on French romantic novels and nothing else has ever worked? And he goes, I don't know. What do you think? And I said, well, I think it's because the, the, each novel has an individual style of music that it asks for. So you think about Phantom of the Opera, it's a romantic musical. If you think about Les Miserables, it's not dramatic, it's heroic. And the music is heroic. Yeah. Do you hear that? That's, you yep. know, it is dramatic, yes, but it's also heroic. Me and a lot of guys of my age, my, my, my vintage, uh, read The Count of Monte Cristo as kids. And that was our first awakening to real literature. And it stuck with me. So I got a team together and he said he would listen to a treatment. Go write 10 songs in a synopsis. So I got this team together. I was, this is Cam Mack, yeah? This is Cameron Macintosh, yeah. So I, I knew this guy, Tony Arias, who had written a thing that I had done. And I found this person to write lyrics and we started working. And it never came to fruition there. The lyricist didn't write what she needed to write and it didn't happen. So, yeah, so, so we're in Lago di Como. I have an electric keyboard, and I have a computer. And for the first time, they have a thing called Finale. Now, I'm not a piano player. I, I never had lessons in anything until university. But Finale is a way of writing music. And I can hear the music in my head. I just can't play what I hear. Suddenly, I was able to write each individual line and do that sort of thing. And I pulled out those files. And I remember I, at 10 o'clock at night is when my creative juices start flowing. And my wife is, an, is a morning person. So I remember at 10 o'clock at night, 
10.30, kiss her goodnight. She'd go to bed. I'd start writing. I'd finish about 6, 6, 6.30 in the morning. Wow. She'd get up. i kiss her. i go to bed. In two weeks, I wrote basically 90% of a full-length musical. It wasn't, you know, fine-tuned or anything, but I've written the entire story. There were 32 songs. I've written a placeholder script to tell the story, and, and it's there. And, uh, and I loved writing it. It's, it's still here. It's never been heard. Uh, there's that moving line between writing it and producing it. But um, for me, because I, and if anybody ever hears it, great. If they don't, that's okay. I needed to. And you're happy creative. with that. Yeah. The creative process is what I needed. I needed that catharsis at the time to work this out. And I loved the process of finding the characters and how they, and listening to the story. How, what do you sound like? It is a dramatic musical, um, but it's also that idea of asking yourself, um, how far do we go as human beings if, 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 we, if we have a need for revenge? W- who do we become? What do we do? Where, where do our morals and our ethics stop or don't stop? And, and this is very much what that, that, that crisis of consciousness uh, for this character. And I think it's kind of in a minor way for us, major way for him, uh, something we deal with every day. You know, lying, telling the truth, backstabbing, seeing uh, colleagues go, you know, jumping... All there's a lot of stuff, and is it called the Count of Monte Cristo? The Count of Monte Cristo, amazing. And now I'm working on one on Joan of Arc, which is more of a rock musical. So it's a completely different idea. Is there anything else out there, sort of unfulfilled fantasies that you'd like to, you know, sink your teeth into or grab hold of? One of the things about being in New Zealand is, is why are you here? Because my wife is from here, and because we were in the UK, I was I. Retired in 2007 from performing and went into teaching and research and all sorts of stuff. I got a job at Newcastle College, teaching, basically teaching a NASDA type program. This is Newcastle in the UK. In the UK, yep. yeah. So it was a tertiary musical theater program. And I found myself uh, suddenly in, in new territory um, designing curriculum. What can I give these kids that will reflect what I had to go through and what I got as a performer? And so it was, I, I found it fascinating. And teaching these kids not just to be in musical theater, but to think deeper, to be deeper people, to write, to critique. And it was a wonderful year of development. But then um, we decided, we, at, we my wife and I asked, okay, so if we had a family, what would we do? I have two grown kids. I have a 33-year-old and a 30-year-old from my first marriage. I am now a grandfather, actually, just wow. recently. And um, But sure enough, a week or two later, we found my wife was pregnant. And we said, where would we go? We had a following in Belfast. And we thought about going there. She's a Wagnerian opera soprano. So we thought about going to Germany. We had contacts there. We thought about staying in England. Her agent was there. And after all in all, and we talked about California. Now, the family is here. My, my parents had died at this point. My son was off doing his studies. My daughter was still back in San Francisco. Um, the grandparents, the, the aunts and uncles, the cousins, they were all here. And of course, I went, great. Okay, we're going. I had no idea what I would do when I got here. I, I figured I would probably continue teaching privately or something. It's morphed into a million things. I Going back to things I did back in the day, choral conducting, which was one of my first university studies, and orchestral conducting, which also um, acting, stage directing, um, teaching. I get to do everything here. That's the wonderful thing about being here for me is the opportunities are incredible to be diverse. I don't have to be focused. Because you've got such a tremendous background, having worked with all of these amazing groups and these amazing people, you're a, you're a gem, really, for Christchurch to have. And that's not blowing smoke up your proverbial. I was very fortunate. And I think I was talking to somebody recently about what motivates you and in all the things that I do. And 
I finally realized what it is. It's I want to bring to the community and to these performers some of the kinds of experiences I had. Not, not that it was big, expensive tickets, something like that. It was just the quality. Some of the greatest things I did were in the smallest possible towns. But you remember those things. They get etched into your memory of going through the process and coming out the other side a better performer, a sometimes a better person. The directors and conductors who invested in me, I kept developing. It wasn't just doing a job. For the audiences to experience that, I have a professional choir called Atlas Voices, by the way, on May 25th at the Oxford Terrace Baptist Church. We are doing an incredible concert of the full Duraflay Requiem and uh, Yalo's Dark Night of the Soul, and we're going to put the proceeds toward the Muslim Victims Fund. It's an incredible acoustic at this church, an incredible piece to do on this kind of occasion to market. But that choir, if you call it that, has performed at times beyond my wildest expectations at that Chanticleerian professional recording level, Grammy award-winning level. It's a matter of being consistent. These are people with jobs and families, and we only meet four or five times before a concert. But I wanted to get the best talent in town, and, and I'm very, very proud of the accomplishments. Whether there's 200 people there or 600 people there, it's that level of going through the process. So I'm very lucky that I was able to have all those things in my life. Yes, I was prepared, and people don't call it talent, whatever. Right place, right time, listening, paying attention, being a sponge. It's not without its... Uh, limitations? Tri- no, no, not limitations. Trials and tribulations. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a different from other people here. And I think sometimes people have a really hard time dealing with what some would call brutal honesty. Otherwise, would call it just meanness. I speak my mind. It's not being unsupportive. This but is you being a mean person. Yeah, um, because I didn't like something or I didn't. I'll never go into Curious Incident at the court theater and shaking through the entire play, especially at the end of it. And I went, oh, that's right. This is about me, the audience member. The catharsis is there. And we have a lot of wonderful, wonderful recreational arts in, in Christchurch where it's about the, the music making um, and the people who are doing it, meeting every week and rehearsing. And it's great. Um but you look at something like the CSO, which in my estimation is a professional orchestra on, on every level. But, you know, they meet three, four times and they do a concert. It's a, and it's, it's about the people in the audience. And they're good enough and quick enough and deep enough that they can get to that level very, very quickly. So the, the, it's not limit, limited at all. But I am a different kind of personality to deal with, if you will, than a lot of people are used to. And uh, whether that's good, bad, or indifferent, I'll leave that up to the individual to find. But uh, being here has been incredible in terms of the opportunities. Um, I have a nine-year-old daughter. There's no place on the planet I would ever move to to raise a daughter than here. It, right now, in this place, in this world, this is absolutely the best place to raise my daughter. Last question. Is there anyone that you'd like to work with down the track if you got the opportunity? problem is I've worked with a lot of the great ones. I've worked with Hal Prince. My, my life is over. Thank you. I've worked with Dave Brubeck. I've worked with Franco Zeffirelli and Trevor Nunn and Daniel Berenboim. Now you're this. just name dropping. Yeah. No, no, no. This, but uh, the, the reason why is somebody's got to understand what the answer I'm going to give is bizarre. I would really like to work with Pink. Why? Because she's brilliant. She's organic. She's deep. She's honest. She's... um. She's the consummate professional. When we get down to it, we're performing, it really should be structured improvisation. You know, the chords and the words and this is all, and the lights and the sound and the show and everything is all structured so that in that moment, you can be organic. And it should be different every single time based on all the talent and all the preparation, all the structure and everything else. And I look at Pink and I go, 
wow, the integrity of her lyrics, the integrity of performances, the vocal development over the last five years has been incredible. The way she takes the stage, the individuality as a sponge artist, a person who becomes better by being around greatness, that's a person and a kind of artist I've really never been around that much. Is there a female lead in The Count of Monte Cristo? Oh, I'll write it. No, I actually... The Joan of Arc musical, it's it's actually written with her voice in mind. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it's this um, taking a look at Joan of Arc was 15, 16 years old when she was going through all this. And it's a historical fact what happened. You know, the religious parts is a whole different thing. But I kept thinking, if you look at that story through the eyes of a 15 or 16 year old coming of age, and you put it in a contemporary musical form like rock, and it actually has some gospel in it too. But That's going to be tough to cast. Uh, actually, you know, the funny thing is I've been lucky to work with a lot of uh, the female uh, musical theater singers in town. Um, Cat Hay, Jane Leonard, people like that. And, and they can all do it. They've all got those kinds of chops. So I can take advantage of the musical styles and the high belt and that sort of thing. Um, and we have a lot of phenomenal male performers coming through. Some of the stuff at Showbiz, I mean, the, the vocal cast of We Will Rock You was unbelievably great. So we have the talent. That's the thing. We're in a small little country at the bottom of the world. I keep hearing that. Instead of using that as an excuse, I think it's actually a motivation. We're a small little country in the bottom of the world that's punching way above its talent weight. And the talent is here as, as much as anywhere, if not more so per capita. So it's just a matter of giving them material to, to invest themselves in. Is there a song you'd like to play us out with today? Um, going back to our original kind of conversation, uh, I think it's, it's a classic. Um, it's one of those things where when we think deep and hard about our lives and about the journey we're on, I really think to capsulize the meaning of humanity, tear the roof off the sucker, would be a good song for that. Reveal, thank you so much for being on the show. A pleasure. Tear the roof off, we're going to tear the roof off the mother sucker. Tear the roof off the sucker. Tear the roof off, we're going to tear the roof off the mother sucker. Tear the roof off the sucker. Tear the roof off, we're going to tear the
time for my track of the week and in keeping with the Good Friday theme I've chosen a track which was written about 10 years ago by Christy Knuckles it's being performed by a tremendously talented UK singer-songwriter by the name of Matt Redman it was recorded as live in London some seven years ago the lyrics for me are quite poignant still after the events of March 15th so I hope today you can find comfort in the message of this song this is by our love. Love with his hands 
see with his eyes bind it around you and let it never leave you and they will know us by our love yes the time is now come church arise love with his hands and see with his eyes bind it around you let it never leave you and they will know us by our love they will know us by our Right, thank you so much for joining me today. My guest was Reveal Atlas, director of Atlas Voices. If you want to find out more about what Reveal is up to, then please do visit gardenofsound.nz and click on Reveal's image. That's all from me today, except to say thanks to Mint Finance for bringing you Garden of Sound, and it would be somewhat remiss of me to go out without playing a little bit of the Blue Devils. So until next time, keep well, keep listening, and keep playing. <laughs>